0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Puleski and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Will Lurskin is in the cloud. The Prime Minister has invoked the Emergency Act. I think that means Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger are coming.
1: Oh he is no, you know what the uh, emergency act means is I can lock you in your room and I um, I don't have to give any explanation or excuse. Is that what it means? The judges, no waving me off on that one. All right, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber is on the board and in the newsroom watching the world spin. Is uh, Lisa Puleski and Dave Woodard. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open at 905 645 3221 star 9900 on your cell. Another jam packed show. Lots going on, man. uh, What's the slow news day now? Uh, um, Well, you know what? Here's something. Here's something that's not even uh, uh, COVID related or protest related or anything uh, of that nature. Prince Andrew uh, reaches an out of court settlement. So none of that's.
2: feel
1: free to jump into the fun oh sorry hang on i got so many things going on here Uh, feel free to jump into the fun, love to hear from you send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell All right, big news today uh after obviously yesterday's the emergency act has been uh declared uh and and critics saying this is an overreach especially as Ontario and Quebec uh, managed to manage their problems uh whether it's the legislature or the border or what have you uh Coutts, Alberta same sort of thing So um, uh, some are saying this could be overreach. Uh, Doug Ford, on the other hand, one of the few premiers behind this, saying enough's enough. We've got to uh, move on uh, and and take some control. And, you know, again, as I said yesterday, the the prime minister, um, even in the news conference yesterday, announcing the emergency act, uh, he he sort of like he looked like a kid with his his hand caught in the the cookie jar. And then when other people were uh, were speaking, he'd have his mask on and put on his Mr. Angry Eyes and, and, and say words like support and more tools in the toolbox. I, I don't think uh, Ottawa or anyone needs any more tools on the floor or, or tools in the box. They need for the prime minister to open up the toolbox, pick up one of the tools, and then start to fix this uh, instead of shoving it on to everybody else. Uh, and it's fascinating. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing how after two weeks of this, I think we're on day 19 though, but at around day 14, day 13, uh, when it looked like, when it was obvious this ain't going anywhere, everybody started, you know, blaming the opposition. It's, it's, it's everybody else's fault who listened to anybody on the other side or, or what have you. And it's like, my goodness, um, and I said this earlier on in the week, uh, how long can you pass this off to the police chief? How long can you pass this off uh, onto the mayor of Ottawa? How long can you pass this off onto uh, the council or the province of Ontario or, or you know, big bad American money coming in from the United States? Uh, at what point do you start to take responsibility for in your, your own actions, which were to walk away from this at the very beginning and not even give these people, uh, not even give them an ear, not even listen to them. And, you know, it turned out uh, uh, instead of, you know, sloughing it all off, it is what it is now, and he's waiting for everybody else to, to fix it. And all of this started with vaccine mandates for truckers going across the border. And the sad part is, is as as the prime minister was letting this ramp up, everybody else is going the other way. The restrictions are being loosened. Doctor uh, Bogosh, Isaac Bogosh, but on the show many times again said today, dying to move on. And you know, there's still the others on the other side who are oh, let's listen to the science. Well, how many scientists we have to listen to here? And the prime minister is the last to act and. Uh, again, today announcing that, uh, border, uh, uh, restrictions that we've had to undergo with PCR testing and such are now going to be relaxed. So, um, again, by the time they get all this equipment removed from Ottawa, all of this will be, everything will be back to, it'll be dropped. It'll be, it'll be irrelevant. It'll be like a vaccine passport. It'll not be needed. So it's fascinating that this has had to escalate uh, to the point that it, it has simply because the prime minister ignored it for two weeks. The mayor of Ottawa, the police chief, and he is the first of the fall guys to go. Earlier today, the police chief of Ottawa resigns, falls on his sword, took the heat, it's all his fault. It's all his fault. If you think that having the trucks on the hill and what's been going on for the last 19 days, what transpired and spread to other borders and other leg- legislatures and then moved on. If you think this is all the fault of the Ottawa police chief. Wow. You know, and again, the prime minister is just offering more support. Got your back, more support, more tools for the toolbox. It's not what we need. We need someone to take charge, someone to stand up and, and, and reach out, do whatever it is to get this mess over with. And uh, again, the police chief, the first one to, uh, you know, the first one to take the fall, the first scapegoat for something that the prime minister started could have ended this. In the first weekend, by, by, by saying those three words that he didn't say for over two weeks, I hear you. I hear you. Don't agree with you. Don't think you should be doing this. I hear you. And honestly, like you look at the provincial restrictions that are that are opening up, people are saying, well, is this due to the truckers? No, it's not because they were, all most provinces announced this back after Christmas and they started opening up in January. But this is different for the feds. They've just acted now and on the books was supposed to be vaccination. So truckers couldn't go between provinces without being vaccinated. What happened to that one? So clearly the actions of these protesters have altered the federal government. I think the provincial governments were already moving in that direction and had the plan anyway. All right, let's move on uh, to something a little bit more local. Uh, we had uh, some provincial politicians in town today, and the provincial government has announced, along with the premier, its commitment towards a $1.8 billion uh, green steel transformation at Hamilton's Arcelor Missal uh, Premier Doug Ford says his government investing $500 million in grants and loans into a project that calls for Coke ovens In blast furnaces to be mothballed and replaced with electric arc furnaces by 2028 Uh, ford says the investment will help meet the global demand for low carbon auto uh, products and obviously as ontario continues to uh, move forward with the electrical vehicle in uh, industry as well let's bring in vic Fideli, minister of economic development job creation and trade and is with us now minister thank you for the time i hope you're well
3: Yes, I'm well, and thank you very much for uh, having me on today. This is a great chance to chat about uh, our Driving Prosperity Auto Strategy.
1: Before we get to that, Vic, and and I know we're gonna we're gonna touch on that for sure, but I have to ask you, what you, your thoughts on on where we are right now with the province and the country, uh, emergency act? Uh, obviously, we got the borders cleaned up, we kept the legislature clear and hospital row and such, but still uh, some issues in in Osh- in Ottawa rather, and we hearing out that the, that the police chief resigns to uh, today as well. Uh, Canadians are wondering who's driving the bus. Anything you want to say?
3: Well, I'm. Completely with the premier on this, Uh, the, you know, the protest is uh, everyone's right to be able to do a peaceful protest in our country. That's what our democracy is all about. The premier has been very clear that we we heard the message, we understood, and as he has said many times, now it's time to go home and uh, uh, let us uh, absorb uh, the message and uh, get on with the business of doing business.
1: Uh, we've heard some say that uh, they felt Ontario should have been doing more. That you know, trying to sort of shove the blame onto provinces. Reaction to that?
3: Well, look, uh, I th- you know, I I, I think the premier has been very, very clear. Uh, we took very decisive, uh, very decisive action. Uh, we took very decisive action as it was required, and. Uh uh, you know, we're very happy to see uh, the bridge certainly in Windsor open and get the trade uh, resuming there. Uh, and we, you know, we're, we're back out today uh, making these important investments in Ontario. And I think that's
4: really where we're, where we're focused.
1: All right, let's talk about this. Uh, ArcelorMittal Fasco, always on the cutting edge of this industry and, and now electrifying this. So, so tell us, because uh, man, we see there's a lot of coal out there. Uh, how do you electrify something this massive? Tell us about this project.
3: Well, it will be uh, an electric arc furnace. So it's a very uh, uh, intensive process. And it really does uh, replace both the coal-fed coke ovens and the blast furnaces. Uh, and this will be using all low-emission technology. The whole idea of this is uh, is uh, replacing it with natural gas, basically, is the uh, uh, is, is a big part. Uh, is a big part of it as well. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, I, 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 I'm absolutely sorry. And with electric electricity that is created here in Ontario through nuclear is what I meant to say, and and uh, yeah. and uh, water power.
1: So it will be a blend of electricity and natural gas. Is that accurate? No, I, I, no, no. I, I misspoke. I was
3: thinking uh, nuclear when I said natural gas. I'm sorry.
1: So, sorry, is it electric or natural gas, or what is it? It's an
3: electric arc furnace.
1: Right, right, okay. So, uh, you know, obviously it would take a tremendous amount of uh, electricity, we're guessing, to do this sort of thing. Uh, uh, what about the cost from an electricity perspective? How how does DeFasco balance all of this and, and the government of Ontario?
3: Well, certainly uh, we've been lowering the cost of electricity, especially with uh, our industrial and commercial uh, clients, uh, trying to bring back the the proper pricing of of electricity in Ontario. And we've been very successful with that. Uh, And part of the incentives for uh, for DeFasco are uh, a couple of years, the first couple of years of some assistance on the hydro to be able to normalize the hydro rates as well.
1: Now, with the move to EV and all of this, uh, Minister, uh, should Ontario be concerned, can Ontarians be concerned about uh, their uh, electricity rates or if we have enough to power all of this?
3: No, certainly we have plenty of power. We still make more power in Ontario every single night than uh, uh, every single day and every single night than we use in Ontario. So we are uh, a net producer of uh, uh, energy in Ontario. So. We know that we're in very, very solid uh, stead.
1: So, as soon as they flick on the blast furnace there at Defasco, the lights aren't going to dim or brown out in Hamilton or anything.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But what you will see is a is a real transformation in Ontario. When you think about where we were only a few years ago um, to where we are today, with the entire uh, uh, driving prosperity plan. It really started when the auto companies told us the cost of doing business in Ontario was too high, Uh, and we began by pulling all the levers we can from the province of Ontario to be able to lower the cost of uh, doing business, like reducing WSIB premiums without touching the benefits, putting in uh, different tax incentives to be able to write off your equipment, lowering the cost of energy, we lower the provincial share of businesses Uh, local property taxes, all all in it's about $7 billion every year of savings in the province of Ontario. And that's what has attracted the auto companies like Ford, where we made an investment of $295 million, uh, and General Motors and Stellantis, who have all collectively committed $6 billion. So we are now seeing electric vehicle production planned for Ontario. We're now looking very, very hard and working very hard towards getting an electric vehicle battery plant built in Ontario. Uh, And we've been investing tens of millions with our auto parts manufacturers and Mm. the tool and die and mold makers. Uh, The list goes on to include critical minerals in northern ontario where for the first time northern ontario will now be included in the auto sector because of the nickel and the cobalt lithium graphite that's needed and the final piece is the green steel that will now come out of hamilton you can't make green tar truly green cars without without green steel so that's incredible
1: that's a bizarre phrase even think about that considering how far the steel industry's come vic fedeli with his ministry of economic development job creation and trade Uh, thanks for the time vic be well A pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Borders and, and, you know, things are clearing up in Alberta as well. Uh, And the Ambassador Bridge, we remember over the weekend. Let's bring in Drew Dilkins, mayor of Windsor and is with us now. Drew, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
5: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
1: So, Drew, give us an update right now. Is everything still moving uh, smoothly across the border?
5: It is. Uh, all lanes are open. Everything's moving smoothly. We still have uh, quite a an out-of-town police presence uh, staying with us in recognition that this is such a critical piece of infrastructure that we just can't possibly let this happen twice. Uh, so, so,
1: no, I'm sorry, go ahead.
5: Yeah, so, they, so this roadway from, say, the end of the 401 to the Ambassador Bridge is a municipal road called Huron Church. It's about two kilometers long, and so on both sides of this roadway now, you have Jersey barriers. That when you come off the 401, you are effectively in a, uh, you know, in a pipeline that leads you right to the bridge. You can't get off east or west. You've got to go right to the bridge once you're in here. And there are police stationed all along the road uh, that if anyone tries to uh, to, to stop and, and, and uh, begin another blockade, they can act right away.
1: Um, many were concerned once the Ambassador Bridge was finally cleared that there would be these pop-up protests. Have you had any issues at all like that, Mayor?
5: Not on the roadway. So there have still been some protesters on the sidewalks, uh, but even they have largely dissipated now. Uh, ultimately, there were 43 arrests. There was no violence, no injuries. Uh, and so those who were most resolute uh, in their position uh, were ultimately arrested and and have been charged. And uh, by and large, the the protest itself has mostly dried up, thankfully.
1: Obviously, we don't uh, want you to reveal any plans here, but any idea how long uh, the measures that you're taking now to protect that pipeline, as you called it, will have to stay there? Or uh, is this going to make you look at protocol and, and, and how that road and that bridge is fed moving forward?
5: Well, the situation on the ground is extremely disruptive to businesses that line that road. It, it, is, it is going to be a problem even in the short term. But I think everyone appreciates that this border crossing is just too important to our national economy uh, to have any disruption again. And so I, I don't have a line of sight on how long police will maintain control of the road. I, I suspect it from my conversations that they're waiting to see what happens in Ottawa uh, and what kind of uh, resolve they find there. And we will remain on this. I would call it a heightened state of readiness uh, down in Windsor uh, until there is some some resolution there. And we understand uh, how the convoy or if the convoy moves elsewhere.
1: Uh, are you concerned about and I guess it would make sense if you break up what's going on in Ottawa, things might funnel out again. Uh, how closely are you watching what's happening in the capital?
5: Uh, watching very, very closely. And police are trying to gather all of the intelligence and are sharing any intelligence Uh, that they have and are receiving intelligence in return. And so uh, it's expected we will probably have officers from Windsor that go up to help support Ottawa's effort as well. And it really will be an all hands on deck uh, effort to resolve this. You you cannot have uh, these types of illegal blockades happen uh, without taking action. I mean, I I fully respect and appreciate uh, everyone's ability to protest, to demonstrate, to express themselves. Uh, this is a whole different level. This is something that can't be allowed to happen uh, again. Uh, And no longer can you be in a situation or can we be in a situation where we have 200 people holding hostage the lives of hundreds of thousands of people on either side of the border. Uh, Because when the border closes, plants start, start shutting down right away. Action is taken by employers and they send people home who then can't put bread on their own table.
1: Uh, obviously, it's still early, and as you said, the, the situation's still fluid, Mayor. But um, uh, can you can you look at this and learn something from uh, from it? Prepare for another, um, and 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 move forward. What what can you learn from this?
5: Well, I'll tell you, we're going to have to implement some some hardening uh, uh, measures along here on Church Road, leading to the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, the thought that anyone who gets, you know, a couple dozen friends to drive a car and just park and block this roadway to make their point thought that that could happen that easily and happen again. Uh, I think for anyone here, since, uh, you know, shivers down our spine and across the country, probably up to the prime minister's office sends shivers down his spine as well, uh, because the impact of a seven day closure was nearing seven billion dollars. Uh, it's about 400 million dollars a day in trade that crosses that bridge and it completely stopped and the fact of the matter is there was really nowhere else for it to go so that was three billion dollars in lost trade over the course of a week it just it can't be allowed to happen again and i would suspect that uh, in fairly short order we will have additional measures we can implement that will get rid of the jersey barriers uh, that are lining the road today but put some hardening measures in place that give police a little more operational control of this important pipeline.
1: Could we have done more at the beginning of this to resolve this sooner? As you said, seven days could. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty. but should have something have been done sooner?
5: Well, from the very moment that it started, I should say that there were rolling convoys through the city of Windsor for yeah. a couple of weeks or 10 days before it happened. And they were peaceful and they didn't stop international trade. Uh, And the protest existed with international trade. And then without warning, uh, you know, all of a sudden at a certain moment in time, everyone stopped and had coordinated just to stop and block the traffic. Uh, And so I'm sure there will be many debriefs in terms of lessons learned. Could we have acted faster? Absolutely. From day one, uh, I was saying this will not end with municipal resources alone. This is just too many people. Mm. Uh, It is going to require a federal and or provincial response. And so it took a number of days uh, for, for the approval of the officers requested to be sent down here. Uh, But once they were requested in writing, uh, the response was very quick. It took a little over 24 hours to assemble everybody here to develop the operational plans and and then be able to move forward. And so, uh, you know, at the the same time we were applying for an injunction, the premier declared a state of emergency. There were were lots of people uh, with their attention on this because the impact of this closure was so, so large and so material to the bottom line of so many companies that it could not be ignored even at the highest land the highest uh, government in the land
1: drew tilkins with us mayor of windsor great news open again drew good luck moving forward with all this thanks for the time be well
5: thanks very much you as well what matters to you what
0: matters to hamilton matters to scott you're listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml
1: uh, all, obviously, uh, other uh, situations occurred over the last 19 days, including uh, some issues in Quebec, some in Ontario, but have pretty much dissipated the Ambassador Bridge. Uh, obviously, that has been reopened. We just talked to the mayor of Windsor. Uh, so good news there. Also, uh, same thing happening out west. Uh, at the Coots border, as uh, they've got movement there as well. Let's bring in Heather Urex West, Global National Alberta correspondent, and with us now. Heather, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
6: I am. Thanks for having me.
1: So, give us an update here on what has uh, transpired over the last uh, few hours in regard to Coots and, and where we are.
6: Yeah, I can tell you that after 18 days, it is over here in Coots. The blockade has ended. Border traffic. Uh, is once again getting through the border from where I sit at this uh, moment. I'm um, just outside a community of Milk River where a secondary protest camp had been set up. Uh, People had been living on the highway just past an RCMP checkpoint. Um, And while there are, you know, maybe a handful of people still on the sides of the roads, you know, packing up trailers and, and such, and the uh, RCMP checkpoint is still here. Um, uh, we've been watching a, a large number of commercial trucks uh, make their way across the RCMP checkpoint to the border at long last. This is a, you know, a major trade corridor for Western Canada, certainly for Alberta. And uh, not having access to uh, this border crossing was costing tens of millions of dollars uh, every day. So it's, it's good to see this, um, this issue fi- finally resolved.
1: Talk about uh, talk about the uh, the ammunition or the guns, uh, weapons that were found, and and how that added to this uh, to this investigation and moved it forward.
6: Yeah, absolutely. This is what has really um, brought this blockade to an end. So, you know, the the people, the protesters that we were talking to uh, over the course of the last two and a half weeks, they would stress over and over that they were here to, for a peaceful protest. And while there were some incidents of Um, law breaking and that this protest was declared an illegal protest for the most part it was peaceful until the weekend now on sunday police say they received some information about a small group of people connected to the protest that they had access to weapons and also a willingness to use force against police if police were to move in and then break up the uh the blockade so they did execute a few search warrants on monday morning and then uh so Searching a few trailers that were in the community of Coots, and they seized um, a large uh, number of, of weapons long guns, handguns, high capacity magazines, ammunition, body armor, um, as well as I think a machete, as well, and then laid uh, a series of charges. 13 people arrested, most of them um, facing charges of mischief and weapons possession but three people have also been charged with conspiracy to commit murder so this so is very serious uh, a very serious escalation here and a lot of the protest organizers they they met on monday and they decided you know what our message has always been to uh, maintain a peaceful protest this isn't something we support or want to be associated with hmm. so uh they told us that that was what when it became clear to them that it was time for everyone to leave
1: so uh it appeared two different factions within that protest uh the hardcore and those demonstrating their rights and such but once uh this cachet was found obviously clearer heads prevailed
6: absolutely and so then we saw just after breakfast this morning um a, a large group there's this Bar called the Smuggler's Saloon in town, and that sort of has been the headquarters for the protesters. And so we kind of saw them all gather and and take a, a group photo. It had this sort of end of camp feel. They they sang "Oh Canada" <laughs> and and they all you know got in formation and they did a a, a convoy out, down through Coots as they came through the secondary protest site in Milk River, there was this, this atmosphere of celebration as they honked and the people in the protest camp cheered and hugged each other. And, you know, we, we spoke with some protesters that say that they're really proud of what they did, of what of standing up. They, they still feel very strongly um, about, you know, the need to end COVID, COVID mandates, vaccine mandates and COVID restrictions, many of, of which are, are ending in Alberta, Um but, uh, yeah, they they said that it was time to to wrap up and and to go home.
1: So is that it, Heather, or are you concerned of are they concerned of other pop up protests that may happen?
6: Well, among the people that I spoke with um, that we spoke with here, you know, the first plan is to go home and and return to real life, uh, have a proper shower. Uh, I'm told that there aren't any other protests planned. Um, the RCMP, as people were leaving, they were taking everyone's names, giving them mm. some information, telling them that the expectation is that if they're going to be uh, protesting, then to, to, you know, participate in a peaceful protest, one that would not impede access to infrastructure like a border. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hopeful that things will kind of get back to normal. Um, and. You know, there's still some remnants of this protest camp and some police presence here near Milk River. But uh, all signs point to uh, a resolution here and and a relatively peaceful one.
1: Good news. Heather Yorick's west with us, Global National Alberta correspondent. uh, Coutts, uh Alberta, the border is open and it looks like peace restored. Heather, thanks for the time. Good luck.
6: Oh, you're welcome. Thank
1: you. A couple of big announcements uh, today. Uh, One of them, uh, the police chief of Ottawa resigns uh, amongst the protests going on. Uh, The OPP and I believe the RCMP are working together now to uh, come up with a solution to that problem. The second big announcement uh, was that uh, the travel restrictions requirements Uh, to travel to and fro in and out of this country are relaxing. And to find out what that all means for those that are packing a suitcase, let's bring in Barry Choi, uh, travel expert and with us now. Barry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
2: I am. Good to be back.
1: So what does this mean, Barry, if uh, you're traveling obviously after February 28th or before February 28th?
2: Uh, You know, let's talk with the people who are traveling before that deadline. So before March 1st. Everything that applies right now still applies, and by that I mean you have to take a PCR test when you come back. If you have unvaccinated children under the age of 12, they cannot return to school uh, for 14 days. Uh, Those are the biggest things, and for those who are traveling after March 1st, uh, it's going to be a lot easier when you come home, no more PCR tests no more quarantine for kids who are unvaccinated um, and no more blanket travel advisory to avoid all non-essential travel. So this is good for the industry and good for people who are looking to escape Ontario weather. What about the rapid test? Uh, the rapid test, that's right. You still need to take one on the way back, which is within 24 hours. And that's significant because it's much cheaper than PCR tests. Uh, Rabbit tests are much easier to get abroad or even at home for that matter. Uh, And they cost less. So, So that's much more friendlier for consumers who are looking to travel. So
1: can you do this on your own, Barry, or do you have to go to a specific place, be certified, whatever, and provide something?
2: With the PCR rapid test, you still need to go to a place. So that would be like a shopper's drug mart or or Costco to play it safe. uh, Because the PCR test, you would have to do it before uh, to note that you can still technically take a PCR test within 72 hours if you so desired. um, But you don't have to. You can just do the rapid test within 24 hours now.
1: So uh, this has to be great news for the travel industry
2: you know what this is something that the travel industry has been asking for for a while and understandably so uh i I think looking at the bigger picture you look at public health and experts infectious disease experts they all agree that you know what the cases are coming down it's okay to lift measures and this is just one of those things that have do up and people are very excited for it
1: and uh destinations that people may be going to are all doing the same thing as we are i mean everybody is 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 slowly uh, reducing these restrictions are they not
2: that's correct. There's a lot of destinations, actually, that already didn't require PCR testing. A lot of Caribbean destinations, uh, they allowed you in if you're fully vaccinated, unvaccinated. So, so yes, yeah, some countries have moved quicker than Canada, um, but it's nice for the Canadian government to recognize that things are safer in Canada. We've got a, a better control over the virus um, and, and they're easing up on those restrictions. So it's easier to travel and it's easier to return home.
1: Barry, how do you think this will compare to other previous waves or chances that there were to travel? We remember when things opened up, people were a little bit apprehensive. I have a feeling that won't be the case this time and that the planes are filling up as we're speaking right now. What do you think the demand's going to be like?
2: You know, I think the airlines are licking their lips. You know, they're very excited. Uh, You know, me personally, I'm very excited for this. My daughter's approaching five she can get her vaccination soon there's a lot of travel plans that i've been like putting on hold or, or speculatively booking now i feel a little bit more confident especially when looking at, at the medical research and data also at the same time uh people are going to be very excited because i i do feel like omicron was a, a big concern for many people but again when you look at the data combined with the restrictions lifting uh and the time when you think about it march break is after march first there's yeah, still a lot of yeah. time for parents to Book a trip. And they're like, you know what? Let's do it right now because the last thing they want to do is wait, and then another, you, you know, lockdown. Another variant comes up that prevents you from traveling again.
1: Barry, join with us, travel expert. Good news as of March first: ra- travel restrictions in regard to PCR testing easing up for those coming back into the country. And uh, the lineup will form to the right. Find your brochure. Pick your spot. Barry, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward.
2: No problem. Anytime. Have a good
0: one. You're listening to the Hamilton Today Podcast from 900 CHML.
1: All right, here we are. Uh, I I used to have written down how many weeks we were into this, but then I stopped doing that because I found it to be too depressing. Uh, But uh, the great news is, is we're slowly starting to see uh, restrictions protocols uh, be readjusted and a plan for coming out of this uh, global pandemic. Uh, plans are starting to appear, which, uh, obviously brings us hope. We remember, uh, the healthcare industry and what they have done and what they have been through, the healthcare workers, uh, for the last two years, trying to, uh, keep us healthy and stay healthy. Uh, themselves, and obviously, uh, this putting tremendous strain on our healthcare system, which hopefully will uh, will end with discussions or start with discussions uh, as soon as this is all over on on how we can fix that and be better prepared. But obviously, as uh, it was all hands on deck for healthcare staff uh, to attend to what was going on with those suffering from COVID and such, obviously, other uh, surgeries and such had to be canceled. other programs and and such to uh, in order to fight this global pandemic uh, through various waves uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, It does look now with Omicron and such that uh, we are at a different place. Uh, Many health officials talking about uh, an endemic and such, and the really good news in all of this is we are starting to see hospitals gradually return to what they normally do when they're not in the middle of a global pandemic that can try to save us from that. So uh, that is is quite an an, an important accomplishment for them, and and considering where we've all been through all of this, uh, it's great news that this is starting to open up. With a bit of a local angle on what it means to Hamiltonians, let's bring in Dr. Craig Ainsworth, Director of the Cardiac Care Unit, Hamilton General Hospital, and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
4: Doing well, Scott. Thank you.
1: So, give us a bit of an update here, uh, Craig. What is the health of of Hamilton hospitals right now? Where 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 are we in this pandemic? Considering uh, uh, here we are on February fifteenth,
4: twenty twenty two. Sure. No. Let me let me start with uh, with the pandemic. Um, as with the province, things are getting better day over day and week over week, and we're seeing reducing numbers, both not only in terms of our, our ward patients, but our intensive care unit patients. So, those are all. Those are all very positive. Um, the reality, though, is that we started out with a higher peak in this Omicron wave. Our region seemed to have um, more patients, um, relatively speaking, than many spots in the rest of the province. So, so things are going well, but we started at a higher peak, and so our occupancy is still is still quite high overall in our hospitals. And. As has been reported, it's, it's been very common for HHS hospitals and hospitals in the region to have 105, 110% occupancy still. So we're getting better um, day over day, but our occupancy rates are still quite high, which, which handcuffs us a little bit in terms of trying to get back to pre-pandemic um, surgeries, procedures, investigations, those sorts of things.
1: So uh, how do you explain that, that Hamilton's uh, having a bit more difficult time I- I- at this point?
4: Um, I, I don't think, I, I think things are are, are are going are well day over day, as I said, but for, you know, in, in, in the previous waves, Hamilton and the region seemed to be in a bit of a bubble, and all of our patients that we were, or not all, but many of the patients we were looking after were transfers from the GTA, as an example, but this wave hit our region um a little more severely than most other places in ontario and so when you looked at the numbers um at peak our hospitals were disproportionately full of covid patients compared to the rest of the provincial numbers and so so our peak locally relatively speaking was higher and so we're just decanting a little bit uh, a little bit later than everyone else
1: what about staffing issues, Doctor? Because uh, then it got to the point where you know healthcare workers got sick like everybody else, and and it was like thirty percent of everybody across the board was falling ill. What about staffing issues?
4: Yeah, so those are getting better. We were in you know the five six hundred staff members off at, at at peak, and now now we're sort of in the in the one hundred to two hundred range, which is way better. Um, but you know, it's not a local problem. It's a, it's a national and international problem. Yeah. healthcare care workers and health human resources are, are very stretched. Um, this has been quite, quite challenging, especially for frontline folks like nurses, um, and the like, it's been, it's been a real challenge. And so, so staffing back up is, is, is going to take a while.
1: So what do you say to those in the Hamilton area waiting for surgery and, and where Hamilton is?
4: So right now we're operating about 50 to 60 percent of our pre-pandemic surgical and procedural volumes. Um, we're in meetings every day trying to trying to get back up to 100 um, percent. It would be silly for me to say we'll be back at 100 percent by by tomorrow or next week, but we're trying very hard to get to get there as fast as we can. But it's likely going to be months. We've had to you know we've had to redeploy a whole bunch of um, operative staff, operating room staff, in order to help uh, maintain the critical areas in the hospital, like the emergency room, the intensive care unit, and the like. Um, and so, we're not quite ready to send them back to their um, operating room duties quite yet.
1: Dr. Craig Ainsworth with us, Director of the Cardiac Care Unit at Hamilton General Hospital, as things hopefully get more back to some sort of sense of normal uh, moving forward. Good luck with all of this, Craig, and thanks so much for all the great work that you and your staff are doing to keep us safe. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Much appreciated.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's top 900 CXM1.
1: Big news today. Uh, obviously, um, federal government now announcing that as of March 1st, uh, there will uh, be loosening the requirements to come into the country if you have traveled, uh, including um, the advisory on non-essential travel that's also lifted and uh, PCR tests won't be needed. Uh, You can just get your basic rapid test to get in uh, coming up after March 1st. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that translates for the travel business uh, coming up, especially as we head into uh, March break and such. Other news uh, coming up today. Obviously, uh, Police Chief of Ottawa has resigned, and the OPP and the RCMP have now uh, taken over the response to uh, the protests. So we'll see what happens uh, with that moving forward all right with that let's bring in larry Deany, former mayor of hamilton and he is with us now larry thanks for the time i hope you're well
7: scott i'm doing very very well and you sound at the top of your game as usual
1: <laughs> uh it, well there's lots there's lots to energize people like me your thoughts on where we are with the emergency act and and uh, obviously this protest into its ninth day now 19th day sorry
7: yeah 19th day um well, it's it's uh, um, unprecedented, uh, and uh, you use the word protest, and it may have started out to be a protest, uh, but it became an occupation. Uh, yeah. and then uh, when um, the group there, at least the leadership, wanted a change in government, wanted uh, the government to fall, it became an insurrection. so it's it's ramped up for sure. Uh, creating havoc in the city of uh, Ottawa uh, and elsewhere, but certainly the city of Ottawa, uh, which has had some very dire consequences, uh, not only for the head of uh, the police uh, in that city, but for the citizens who for the 19th day, and I was just watching some television just a few moments ago, uh, had to put up with chaos and disruption and the, uh, The uh, insurrectionists um, are uh, blaring their horns again. Um, And that is um, untenable and uh, not to be supported, I don't think.
1: What are your thoughts on the announcement earlier on today that the police chief of Ottawa had resigned?
7: Well, I mean, I I didn't know. uh, Obviously, this uh, police chief, I've been reading a little bit about him, and he was um, uh, deputy chief in Toronto, scheduled or at least um, uh, some thought that he might have become the chief there. Um, when the previous chief resigned, he was passed over and then went over to Ottawa. Seems like a very experienced individual who has a different um, idea about policing. Uh, and um, his, um, uh, this crisis uh, gave him an opportunity to implement uh, some of his ideas and it went uh, terribly wrong, um, and the police didn't seem to be uh, on top of the situation early enough to, uh, to change it, uh, and the result is that uh, he resigned. Uh, either he was pushed uh, or maybe he just left because he couldn't handle uh, the, the situation. I suspect it might have been a little bit of both, uh, but he uh, um, let the city down. Uh, we'll find out the details once they do an analysis of things there, but I feel sorry for him personally. I'm sure he wanted things to go well, but they have not gone well. And um, and he threw in the towel, I think, fairly it, early, and uh, the other side took advantage of it.
1: Is he a scapegoat here? Uh, can we blame all of this on the police chief? Uh, you know, it, it's, No, it's...
7: no. Well, I, I don't know if he's a scapegoat. I, I hope not. I think it's just a change in leadership because his strategy was not working. Um, but no, I don't blame any of this on him. I blame the, uh, the protesters who became occupiers and became insurrectionists. They're the ones who are creating the problem. Uh, they wanted uh, to make a point, um, and uh, they should have uh, and could have made it in a way that didn't disrupt the life and the economy of a whole nation, and in fact, uh, spurred uh, other people across the globe uh, to try the same stunt. So they're the ones to blame, not not this police chief. This police chief um, simply didn't know how to handle the situation, I guess, and now has left. Did the prime minister
1: do enough to lower this temperature? He didn't really speak up till the two-week mark. It's like the the prime minister and the mayor of, of Ottawa kind of pretended this was all go away for the first couple of weeks. Um, and, and, you know, this started as one thing and then quickly changed to, to something dramatically different. Over the weeks that followed, but uh, should the prime minister have done more to to, to try to to lower the temperature here? Uh, he's being accused of being quite divisive over all of this.
7: Even your dog disagrees with you.
1: <laughs>
7: no, but seriously,
1: I mean, you know, I, I've heard a lot, and you, you know, yeah. I'm critical of the prime minister and his lack yeah. of leadership on this. You know, he he talks about lots of support, he talks about many tools, but no, he, he doesn't want to see, he doesn't want to seem to 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 bend over, pick up one of those tools, and actually do something. It seems like he's propping up everybody else, uh, when in fact this started as his protest, Larry. They're not on the steps of Doug Ford's. Uh, front lawn. They're not on the steps of the Quebec's front lawn. I mean, you know, I mean, this is the prime minister's protest. Has he done enough to lower the temperature?
7: Yeah. So, so you know, and again, I think once we we do a, a postmortem on this, uh, everybody's role uh, needs to be examined. And of course, uh, by the very uh, nature of the fact that he's the person in charge, uh, his role will be uh, foremost in terms of some uh, analysis. Uh, but, but look look at it this way. Um, uh, could he have done some things differently? I'm sure everybody uh, could do something different um, uh, in terms of reacting to something that was dynamic and changing uh, on the fly. Um, but the, the, the essential point here Uh, is that the Prime Minister's job is to marshal resources and provide them to those whose responsibility it is to actually carry out the programs that will assist communities. And policing is a provincial mandate. Um, the yeah, but again, Larry,
1: let's be honest. This is happening on the front steps of Wellington Street. It's it's federal land. I mean, well, again, but, we but we all know that this is you know in some situations it's provincial uh, jurisdiction and such. Total, but this protest okay. was very this protest was very adamant about attacking or, or protesting or occupying federal situations here, whether it's a federal border or well, a federal so set of parliament buildings. I- I'm right. suggesting I'm suggesting that the prime minister is extremely divisive he pushed the whole uh, mandates of vaccines way too hard. We got like a 90% vaccination rate. And instead of celebrating it, we're vilifying the last 10%. And now he's finally changed his tune because Ottawa has blown up. And and he's the last one to, you know, to, to admit it. I think he's the most divisive prime minister in my lifetime, Larry. I really
7: do. Yeah, and you've said this before, and give me a chance to rebut that. Because Go ahead. what you're suggesting in terms of the prime minister needing to do something because it's on his doorstep you're suggesting that he should have brought out the army, right from uh, from this. That's, that's
1: not what I'm. That's not what I'm suggesting well, at all. You know what he should have done, Larry? He shouldn't have turned his back that. and walked away. He should not have turned his back and walked okay, away. Yeah, he should okay, have. He so, said, so, "You know what?" About day twelve of this, Larry, no, he finally said, "I hear you," and that's the first time he said
7: Scott, that. Scott, Scott, you're you're being terribly unfair because um, he, you are expecting, as is Candace Bergen, who, by the way. Uh, put out a statement uh, uh, when she became the the interim leader of the Conservative Party, saying mm-hmm. that we need to keep this going because it looks bad for the prime minister. So this was politicized right from the get-go. Larry, you he's blaming, the you're blaming minister, the
1: opposition. You can't blame the
7: opposition. You can't blame the police well,
1: chief. You can't blame the Ottawa mayor. It's on
7: the prime minister. All right, let's, let's settle this once and for all. All the fault is the prime minister, and that'll make people like you happy because you happen to be a critic of the prime minister. But fairness will tell you that the prime minister used the authority that he has to provide resources where they were needed, and it was up to those elements in the community that are responsible for public safety, namely the police of Ottawa and the OPP of the province and the premier of the province to deal with the disruptions that were happening. They did not. And that's why after 18 days, the prime minister had to invoke this emergency uh, act in order for for the federal authorities to have some say in how to manage the situation. Now, if this goes on for another two weeks, now that the feds are in charge, then we can blame the prime minister entirely. But if you're saying to me that the prime minister should have met with these insurrectionists who wanted to overthrow him, to sit down and say, well, which door do you want me to exit by? Then that's a whole different discussion. And I don't think it's one that in a democratic society, we should countenance. We should understand what the roles are. and We should apportion blame when blame is due. But we should also not expect someone who doesn't have the direct authority to 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 manage the Ottawa police or the OPP we shouldn't blame them when they are not doing their jobs.
1: Larry he poked the bear, he made fun of them and then he ran away How did and he left make it. Fun of them. How he, did he make well, fun he of called, them? He Scott. called he called anybody no, he called them um, no, misogynistic he, he, and racist on a on a on no, a French speaking no, television or sorry no, radio he, show.
7: He called racist those who had a Nazi flag he called those who yeah.
1: Larry you know what i got to let you run here cuz we're plumb out of time and i love the the fact that you came on to discuss this but I, you know again i i just but think I can he's you. he's no he's a divisive man and we need some some people some leaders who are going to unite us not try to uh, vilify the last 10% well, the and and, and how many were
0: we trying
7: to
1: how many were we trying to get vaccinated, Larry? All hundred well, percent? Like, gee whiz, we got thing. 90.
7: But, but that's the <laughs> thing. This has been an entirely successful campaign yeah. to get people vaccinated. And yet, and yet,
1: and, and yet we are all, all so divided. That's the unfortunate thing. No, Larry Diani, former really mayor. Unified. I know. <laughs> we're unified in how many got vaccinated. We're not very unified now, Larry. Uh, thanks for the time. Thanks Much appreciated. <laughs> Emergencies Act, which came into effect yesterday, uh we know that that gives more power to police and and patrol infrastructure protect but what does it mean for uh cyberspace and everything online let's bring in Carmi levy technology analyst and journalist and with us now Carmi. thanks for the time i hope you're well
8: it's great to be here scott thanks for having me
1: so how does an emergencies act affect what you do for a living
8: uh well it gives me lots to talk about uh, because obviously my (laughs) my technology world has just changed significantly the government is essentially as far as technology and financial technology is concerned the government finally decided to uh to get involved for years they've taken a very laissez-faire attitude when it comes to using technology to track uh transactions to track donations to understand for example where uh extremist groups are getting their money from where the, you know, follow the money trail—that kind of thing. We have an organization; it's called Fintrack, uh, which has been around for a little over 20 years. It's designed to track money that, for example, terrorists use to fund their activities. Yet, for whatever reason, they've decided to not uh, apply those rules to what's going on in Ottawa and other cities and across and along the border. And so, you know, what's essentially changed now is the government said, "Hmm, we have these tools." Let's use them here. And they sort of basically bundled it under the Emergencies Act. And here we are today. They're finally extending the long arm of the law to a place that they probably should have done years ago.
1: So this allows them to follow the money. A lot of chatter about the crowdfunding that's been going on and providing money for this for this occupation protest. That's what this exactly. is about.
8: Exactly. And you know because up until now you know what we know is that the these these organizations behind uh, the convoy have been using crowdsourced or crowdfunding platforms like GoFundMe and then when that was not available they shifted to GiveSendGo. Uh they've been using those platforms as as a way of of raising money and then directing it toward where they want it to go. Um, and that uncovered a pretty big loophole is that these are not Canadian operators, they're American operators. And they are, you know, when the government, uh, you know, told the platforms that, you know, we are, you know, you know you're know, you now subject to our rules, give, send, go, basically told them where they could go hmm. on Twitter said, you know, we're on the other side of the border. Your law doesn't apply to us. And I think that caused some lights to go on in Ottawa. And I think that's what, you know, prompted the federal government to include the financial side of the house in the emergencies act when they decided to invoke it
1: i uh, only got a couple of seconds left here Carmi. anything about this concern you overreach in any way
8: uh, none whatsoever. I mean, these laws have been in place for a very long time. We, you know, it's, it's really just a matter of making sure that they operate in the digital era, that there are digital tools that, that are being used now increasingly to move money around. Mm. We need better oversight because otherwise, Lord knows where this funding is going to come from, where it's going to go and how it's going to undermine how you and I live today. We've got to get digital. Government's finally realizing that.
1: Uh, Technology analyst and journalist, Carmi Levy with us, talking about what it means, the Emergencies Act II technology. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be
8: well. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you.
1: Chief Slowly has stepped down as police chief of uh, of Ottawa, and the OPP and the RCMP will now be uh, heading, I guess, uh, the movements moving forward to, to clear up what is going on in Ottawa. Let's bring in Randall Denley, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and the National Post, and he is with us now. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I'm better than the chief. What are your thoughts of the chief stepping down today?
9: I I think it was inevitable, Scott. It was a case of when. I don't think anybody expected him to do it today, necessarily, but over the last couple of weeks, he's just totally lost his credibility here. People are just furious with the police for not doing really anything about these uh, occupiers downtown, and the police just kind of shrunk. Well, you know, we need 1,800 more people from somewhere. And I'm told that he the chief slowly was not really able to persuade either the OPP or the RCMP that he had a plan to use 1,800 people. The normal strength of the Ottawa Police Force is not that high as 1,200, but his initial reaction was, oh, we we can't do anything with only 1,200 people. Then we've got to bring in the Army. Okay, well, not the Army, then how about 1,800 other people from other police services? Maybe that'll do it. And you know, people are just, you know, they're watching as people just have a big never-ending party downtown. And you know, the police said we're, we're getting serious now, and we're going to we're going to cut off that supply of diesel and gasoline down into the the area. And then they didn't do it. People just walk right in front of them with the cans of fuel, which you know, obviously the truckers need. Uh, obviously.
1: Obviously, many said uh, the mayor, uh, the prime minister, even the police chief were, were not real quick to react to this. They sort of turned their back and thought, like, this is like every other protest in Ottawa. It'll go away and we'll just ignore them. Uh, obviously, uh, by the time we got to the two-week mark, uh, things had completely changed. Is the chief the fall guy here? Is, is this all his fault?
9: Oh, it's not all his fault. There was a lot of confusion in a complete leadership Void at every level, really. I mean, the mayor quite early on said, oh, protesters are calling the shots. He never did a whole lot. The city's police services board didn't do a whole lot. You know, as of last Friday, the provincial government finally stepped up and said, okay, state of emergency, new powers. And people thought, okay, well, now the police will do something. Now the province has said, you can go in there and seize those trucks, and you can charge people and start a process that would take away the license to drive. They look at us, there's, there's some pretty powerful tools. Again, nothing happened. Life goes on. Police services board meeting here uh, this afternoon. Uh, Scott, then they, one of the uh, board members said to the uh, the acting chief, well, well, how many people are down there now? How many, how about 150? Okay, there's 150 protesters yeah. right in the core around Wellington. You've got a 1,200 person police service. You can't get rid of 150 people i think Uh, one of the things that we've done wrong here in ottawa is we get all hung up and well how do we get those trucks out how do we get the trucks out nobody wants to tow them they're too big to move The, the better thinking on this is arrest the people get them out confiscate the trucks and then you can remove them at your leisure that would be the sensible way to do it but it's just been a a complete breakdown in policing here i mean toronto was smarter Windsor guys together with some other forces. They opened the ambassador bridge.
1: Yeah, well, see, yet we're seeing leaders blame the provinces. Like, really, like you said, the, I talked to the mayor of Windsor today. It's tickety boo. Alberta's cleaned up. Uh, what happened at the legislature in Ontario was quick. Uh, Quebec, the same thing. So, I mean, this is clear. It's not the province's fight. It's the prime minister's. Yeah. Whatever the breakdown is, has the prime minister successfully deflected all of this away from him?
9: think he owns it now that he's declared the Emergencies Act. The Ottawa chief is out of action. Now people are looking to the federal government saying, okay, well, you're taking over then. serious new measures. What are you actually going to do? And that was one of the things that he didn't explain yesterday. Well, what is the plan? Are we going to bring 3,000 RCMP into the downtown, clean them out? What is it we're actually going to do? And as we know, he's he and his government are not the greatest at doing; they're very good at talking. So, people are waiting kind of impatiently now. Okay, you know, Justin Trudeau—he's the new sheriff in town. What's he got? So, I think if, if nothing continues to happen, the focus will shift away now from the Ottawa police, especially with the chief gone, and it will be on Trudeau and his senior ministers. Well, okay, the other guys were so terrible—they they couldn't get the job done. What about you? You have. What should the, the What should force. the problem? What
1: should the province have done earlier, Randall? I mean, obviously they got the, like I said, the issues before cleaned up. This is, you know, I mean, this is on the steps of Parliament Hill. What should the province have done to 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 uh, to, to help all of this?
9: They could have declared the emergency sooner, and I guess the OPP could probably have taken a more dynamic role. But the complication, partly, is that it's Ottawa police jurisdiction. Yeah. And, you know, basically things are set up for good reason, so the politicians can't tell the police chief exactly what to do. So it really came down here to the police chief, are you going to do something? And it certainly wasn't for lack of people saying to them, chief, do something. I mean, you're down now to a point where the citizens are trying to take things into their own hands. On the weekend, yeah. we had a There was a report that a a bunch of trucks were, smaller trucks were coming up to resupply the convoy and what the route was. So a bunch of people in that neighborhood just spontaneously went out and stood in the road, blocked them, surrounded their trucks, and made them surrender their fuel. Well, the police, you know, looked on, didn't want to get involved or take a side, I guess. But that's how desperate people are here now. But it's not just a, a localized annoyance. I think what's really at stake here is you know, to government and the rule of law control this country or is it just people do whatever they want? And we just can't stop them.
1: What that do you think is going, going
2: to happen, Randall?
9: Point. Yes, vaccine mandate, mandates need to go. But they're way past the point where they're constructive in making that. No, they're just undermining their own point.
1: Do you think that by the time that they get the equipment uh, moved out of Ottawa, that all of these mandates, restrictions will be irrelevant anyway, just the way the pandemic's going and we're opening up?
9: Uh, it, well, certainly some of them will. You know, and the, the province was moving relatively quickly to do that. I think the the concerning thing, and, and really part of the reason for this protest, is what's happening with the federal government. I mean, they're going to change the rules for testing coming back into the country, but we still have it. Yeah. Why it doesn't do anything. Now they're talking about expanding this vaccine mandate for truckers to interprovincial. again, yeah. it doesn't do anything.
1: Yeah. And how can you go there after what's just happened here? That's it's bizarre. Windy,
9: but, you know, they're not
1: That's double down.
9: Yeah, it's double down. We're not backing down to a mob, but it's like they haven't learned anything from Omicron. I mean, you know, Ontario's getting rid of the vaccine passport. Good move. It doesn't accomplish anything anymore. You're just as likely to get sick from somebody who's unvaccinated, vaccinated. It doesn't make any difference.
1: And that's the same thing with the truckers' regulations, Randall. I mean, are they still needed now that we're at this no. point?
9: I mean, no, they're not I needed.
1: So, 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 they, so if he stood, stood up and just said, if he if he stood up and said they're they're gone, the trucks would probably clear it anyway. But that's a defeat for the well, government.
9: We sure help, But he hasn't. All he's yeah. been prepared to do is call them names. Yeah. Hasn't said anybody to talk to him, Hasn't conceded anything. Just call them names. So he has succeeded only in making this problem significantly worse than it had to be.
1: Randall Denley with us, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen, commenting on the Ottawa police chief uh, resigning today. Randall, as always, thanks for the time. Be be well.
0: Okay, thanks a lot. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
1: Lots of uh, announcements today, uh, (laughs) whether it's in regard to Uh, protests, occupations, or even traveling around the world. Uh, There's been lots of information come out today, and uh, obviously uh, restrictions. We're seeing uh, restrictions for travel uh, change as of March 1st when it comes to PCR testing. The federal government has announced that today. Uh, The provinces have pretty much been announcing their opening up programs for for several weeks now and, and moving in lockstep, stage one, stage two, step one, step two, what have you. Um, but with that, it certainly seems we are in a new place. Let's bring in Thomas 10K Professor, School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. He's with us now. Thomas, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
10: Yes, thanks, Scott. Great to be so- with you.
1: So first, your thoughts on the relaxing of the PCR testing, which basically means you can take the rapid test before you come into the country. You don't have to spend the fortune, uh, or, or the days or time it takes to get the actual PCR test. What does this mean as far as, uh, monitoring this, uh, this virus and such? Is it needed? Is this good policy at this time? Um,
10: uh, yeah, like I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm in support of uh, sort of changing those rules in regard to for for travel I I think you know where we're at at the moment uh, you know we're not uh, I think you know that the main sort of infection is within the community it's not sort of people bring it into the community so so because of that I think uh, you know sort of the uh, easing of those restrictions and what that make uh, life easier for everyone for travel is is uh, is not a bad not a bad thing to do.
1: Uh, is this something we could have sped up? Do we need testing at all uh, at this point? Once we find out vaccination status,
10: yeah, uh, I, I think it. Like, I think overall, you know, sort of having an idea of whether or not someone's infective or not is is still important. Uh, and because we, you know, we want people if they are to 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 isolate. Uh, so, so from that perspective, I think that's that's good to know whether you know. Uh, how long will will we still want that to go on for? You know, it, it's hard to say. I, you know, we're we're very much in that sort of phase of of uh, lifting restrictions now, and uh, and so it's really the timeline for doing that.
1: Uh, we've seen Ontario. Uh, obviously, we went into the first stage, I guess uh, January 31st. Uh, the second one to be the 21st. They've started to move that up a little bit by a week. Are you comfortable with them even moving even moving some of these uh, benchmarks up a bit?
10: um mm. uh, i i can understand why they're why they're doing it uh whereas i i suppose i'm still feeling a little bit more cautious about it uh given you know like definitely the numbers uh hospitalization and uh, icu numbers are are coming down but they're still at levels that you know are placing a lot of stress on on the health system and so so you know from a purely infection perspective i i, I would like to sort of uh sort of hold off on as in keep the a number of the restrictions in place for longer but i also realize that the you know the government's trying to balance a, a range of competing interests there but uh ideally i would sort of keep them in place for a bit longer than what the, what they uh, what they're doing at the moment
1: also seeing uh, vaccine passports with Ontario uh, will be, uh, well, I guess it's optional. It's a, if a place of business still wants to do it, they can use them. But uh, by the end of the month, that's also uh, uh, going to be uh, changed as well. Your thoughts on that? Many have said that uh, the vaccination passport at this stage uh, isn't needed. It's it's past its usefulness. Why is that?
10: Uh, well, well, I think um, you know, from my perspective, you know, the evidence in regard to uh, the effectiveness of the vaccines, and and particularly requiring you know having three doses is 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 there. And so, so I, I suppose I've been a bit sort of concerned that they haven't really sort of tried to encourage more people to get three you know be you know have the booster. And so, you know the and, and I suppose where they're the what I suppose where they're coming from is that you know at the moment the uh there's i think it's something around 43 percent of ontarians have 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 the booster and so you know to be able to really ramp it up to have the the effectiveness that we need really requires a lot of effort and and i don't see it just doesn't seem to be that there's the sort of political will to sort of do that and so because of where the numbers are in regard to icu and hospital admissions given where we're at with the 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 vaccine you know the the, particularly the booster doses, I suppose they're sort of saying, well, maybe we don't need to really go go hard on that because of where we're at with the uh, ICU numbers. But, but from a broader perspective, you know, if we're wanting people not to be infected and to uh, not have the more serious outcomes, we really still need to encourage people to get their booster dose.
1: Let me ask you this, Thomas. Um, do we realize how many people have actually come down with this? Because you're talking about the booster and that, you know, there's only been a certain amount of uptake on that, 40%, what have you. I would suggest... The other 40%, 30%, 20% are very much like me uh, in the sense that they've been fully vaccinated and then got it and can't get boosted till three Mm. months after that. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we sort of stopped keeping track of all of this. But I think there's a lot more people infected than what we realize. And do you think that is something to do with the slow uptake of the booster? It's just, you know, you've been told to wait before you get it.
10: Well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, given the the uh, the amount of infection within the community, uh, and you know, I definitely think that that is a factor. I, you know, whereas you know, of what the the sort of evidence is coming out is that that uh, you know having having this sort of uh, you know infection, natural infection, uh, is you know the 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 sort of longer term longer term effectiveness of of the uh, immunity built by that. Is, is not as good as if you did get the booster. So, yeah. so I think, you know, for people who might've had the double, double, double vaxxed and then then have uh, become infected, have had COVID, you know, I would still encourage people, you know, when you're able to, to get the yeah. booster uh, mm-hmm. because I think that's that's gonna give you the best protection you can get.
1: Thomas Tenkate with us, professor School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time, be well.
10: Uh, thanks, Scott.
1: Let's begin Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming right up after the 6 o'clock news. Also, read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, hope you're doing well. Doing fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Your thoughts on uh, the Ottawa police chief resigning in the wake of what's obviously happening or been happening in that city for 19 days now? Is he the fall guy?
11: Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, yesterday the prime minister essentially didn't, call him out directly and didn't throw him under the bus directly but didn't really defend him and I don't think the premier has really defended him and someone's going to take the fall for this and by all accounts even beyond all that it does sound like the people in Ottawa have been rather dissatisfied with the way their police have handled this so um, somebody you know I, I thought maybe something like this might happen afterwards when you had some sort of study about how this thing went down, but I guess uh, get in front of it and, you know, out he goes. So what do you think is going to happen now? Well, um, I don't know, because, I mean, look, we, and when I say I don't know, they'll, they'll have someone come in to replace him. Well, it appears uh, right
1: now the OPP and the RCMP have now taken over the, uh, the assignment, per se, and they are now in charge of 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 rectifying this issue in, in some way. So there is somebody driving the bus. Uh, it'll just be interesting to see you know what happens. And it just seemed for the first two weeks of this nobody gave a damn what was going on. Uh, everybody just sort of stuck their noses up in the air and walked away and said, well they're just a bunch of rednecks. They'll go home soon. Uh and I don't think uh I think this tumbled off the soft shoulders of both the Prime Minister and the mayor of Ottawa. And uh and then obviously on to uh to to the police chief but i i'm not sure this is the he's the whole reason this all went to hell no, in a handbasket. No, i don't no, believe that no, at all
11: I, I don't believe that i mean as i say the the sense from those in ottawa is the police have not done a bang-up job there so okay so that falls on him the buck stops with him but no i look i i talked on the show last night that you know even the toronto star which has been you know generally a liberal supporting paper even they called out the prime minister for saying that he, he's just not done anything here. And, you know, yesterday, what sort of surprised me, and I, and I know you talked about it on your show, what surprised me is you don't do anything for two and a half weeks, and then you bring down the hammer of Thor. Yeah. You go right to the extreme yeah. end. Where was the progression of something? like, And and that's why I think people are... are you know, that that Trudeau is finding himself in in a spot here that he hasn't really been in. I mean, go back. You know what I
1: found, too, though? What I found, too, though, is that, you know, he says a lot of the words. Like, if I hear tool in a toolbox again, honestly, I'm going to give birth to a tool. Um, You know, uh, tools in the toolbox, we're giving them all the support. I think, I don't think supporting people are bringing more tools or supplies to the party is the answer. What people are looking for here is leadership. People are looking for the Prime Minister to pick up a tool and actually fix something with it. And, you know, I understand there's jurisdictional issues, la-la-la-la-la, but that's been a scapegoat for this Prime Minister. He has not addressed this and calmed the, you know, the, uh, cooled down the temperature of, of the it's country. Not the
11: tools. It's not just the tools, and I think you're probably right. And when you talk about... You know, you know where where the things are. Uh, you know the the borders are a provincial jurisdiction, so are, are a federal jurisdiction. Pardon me. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. you know that was not. But I, I there's that, but I think there's also when we go back to this, I think there's also a hope for some statesmanship. And this yes! thing, this thing was. You know, everyone's allowed to protest. We allow that in this country. So the truckers are. We know they're coming. We've hear, heard for days that they're coming to Ottawa. And so you know they're coming, and you know, you let them come because that's allowed, and you let them have their thing, and then you probably, like most other protests, they're going to move on. Instead, you broadly call all of them misogynist, sexist, racist, hillbillies, and everything else. Where is the like you've now poured gas on this fire, and then you're surprised when they react badly. This is yeah. the part I don't get. If he had shown yeah. any kind He's of... He's divisive. Any, But any kind of, you know, I understand. Remember, You know the thing he said days later? You know, I, I hear, no hear you. After two weeks, he said, I hear you. Why not it, say that at the beginning? Exactly. And then, you know, rather than taunting at the beginning and getting everyone mad and getting everyone's heels dug in, why not come with a little bit of an open hand and then if they stick around and look, I'm not supporting them sticking around now. I just no, them not more, at all. But then if they do that, you get firmer and firmer. You don't come out and insult everybody on day one, and then trust that they're going to all go. Oh well, okay, time yeah. to go home. Now they're mad. Now they're they yeah. were mad anyway. Now they're mad and insulted and deciding we're not going to listen to you. I, I just I think it was I think this was a tough situation, but made eminently worse. By a very, very, very poor choice of words by the leader of the country.
1: All right, Scott Radley with us, uh, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And you can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, have a great show. Thanks
11: for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you.
1: That's a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will Erskine and Will Weber. Also, uh, Lisa and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
7: George? Um Canada is like a rudderless ship drifting, like a ghost ship on, on the ocean, and the world looks at Canada as a leaderless country
3: with no direction. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can
0: listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on nine hundred CHML and online at nine hundred chml.com dot